few minutes ago when they were talking of songs to sing, I thought you might break out with, My hope is built on nothing less than Schofield's notes and Moody Press. (laughs) But you passed on that one, for which I'm thankful. Let's open with prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that once again we might assemble in this free land with people of like mind, heart, and conviction, that we might open your word, that we might see wonderful things regarding you and your will for history. We pray, dear Lord, that you would give us of your spirit in full measure, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might be better equipped to serve you in your world. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. By the way, I do want to mention that I very much enjoyed the crowd last night, the people. You're so friendly, so well-informed regarding Scripture. And I very much appreciated getting to know a few of you and getting to talk with others this day and then I hope some more tomorrow as well. It's been a great blessing to be here among you. Now, last night I didn't sleep too well because about 3 o'clock there was a terrible storm out where I'm staying. A lot of rain and wind. And you know, I, I woke up and I, I've, I suddenly felt sorry for short people because I realized that when it starts raining, they're the last to know. I need a laugh sign up here, I think. Please remember that we do have outlines that will guide you in my thinking and what I'm presenting so that it might help you to retain a little bit of what we're talking about as well as, as to visually see what, what's going on. But let's open with the introduction. Uh, we are continuing our study about your future hope in God's world. We are continuing because the first message was in the, regarding the Old Testament evidence, the Old Testament evidence regarding creation, redemption, covenant, and prophecy. We looked at these elements last night and we saw that they fed into this notion that we have a glorious future that is unfolding even as we speak in history. Now, we also have to recognize that the post-millennial hope, that hope for Christ's victory in history, in time and on earth, is also founded in the New Testament evidence. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament feed into this notion of hope for the redeemed of God. And so we're going to be looking at the New Testament and your hope tonight. And now we're going to consider a few things by way of introduction. But first, in the Old Testament, the post-millennial hope is anticipated. In the New Testament, the post-millennial hope is implemented. So we've got the preparation in the Old Testament, and then it's unfolding uh, rapidly in the New Testament. So let's look at uh, just a couple of questions and preparation as we get started here. Notice first, the important kingdom questions. The important kingdom questions. What will be the effect of God's kingdom in time and on earth in history, the history that we're living in presently? Is, or actually will, the creation purpose of God bring positive glory to His holy name in history as it unfolds toward the future? Will it accomplish the redemptive purpose of God in defeating Satan as was promised in the Garden of Eden long ago at the, virtually the very beginning of history? Will it fulfill the covenant expectations that began, especially in Abraham, that all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed? 
Will it secure Isaiah's prophetic hope and expectation of the exaltation of the people of God in history? And not only the exaltation, but the dominance, not in an overbearing way, but in a loving way, the dominance of the Christian faith in history. Will these things come to pass? Well, I would hope that as Bible-believing Christians, simply to ask the question is effectively to answer it. Because our God is the God of all creation, a God of great power, a God of great mercy and love, and He redeems people contrary to their own expectations and their own desires. He redeems sinners, and He will redeem the mass of sinners, we believe, in history. Well, so the first important questions are, will this be affected in history? Of course, I'm I'm trying to prove that as we move through this uh, conference. But I did want to lay it out front that this is what we're getting at. Will these things come to pass? But also, I want us to consider the actual kingdom scope. The actual kingdom scope. One problem that faces American Christians that probably doesn't bother as many Christians worldwide as it does us is the problem, which we rejoice in in many respects, of American individualism. Too often, Christians speak of Christ as my personal Savior. They speak of Christ as my Savior, as if He were individually parceled out to me and to a few others. Well, certainly Christ is a personal Savior, and I'm praising God that He is indeed my Savior. I've trusted in Him as my Savior for many years, since I was 16 years old. And I'm thankful He revealed Himself to me in the Gospel long ago. But that's not the whole story, to talk about Christ as my personal Savior. That's really unbalanced. It's a half-truth if it's left at that point and not other things brought into consideration. The Christian faith, what I'm trying to say, is not individualistic, but it is holistic. The historical effect of the gospel necessarily starts with the individual. It begins in the heart of the individual, but it doesn't end there. That is not the full story of redemption. Thank God for the heart, the beginning of salvation in the individual, but thank God also that it doesn't end there. And we're going to see, as we saw some last night, we're going to see more in the New Testament tonight, that we must expect a future glorious worldwide society dominating culture building Christianity in the world. I believe that's what the Bible teaches and I believe that that is an encouraging hope for God's people to recognize and to understand such. In fact, the description the, the, I'm sorry, description of Christ's redemption is global. It is intended for the world, not for individuals here and there, but for the world as a system of men and things, which is what we'll be looking at as we consider the New Testament evidence. Christians, Christ is not a local Savior. God is not a tribal deity, such as was had by the pagans of old with their idols that had personal idols they could put in their pocket and haul with them anywhere they wanted to go. And they all had their own tribes with their own particular gods. That's not the God of the Christian faith, the God of Scripture. And redemption that God has promised to His people and effected in history through Christ is not a partial fix for the problems of this world. Christ is the King of all kings and He's the Lord of all lords. And as you sing at Christmas... He has come to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. 
Now, how far is that curse found? Well, that's where you'll find the blessings of Christ promised to go. Not only in that hymn, but as we're tempted to show, in Scripture as well. So now let's dig in. I want us to turn to a key passage if you have your Bibles. Of course, I'll be reading it. You might not need to be distracted with opening them. But John 12, verses 31 and 32. Here Christ is speaking in the very dark, gloomy shadow of the cross. He's about to die a horrible death. The wrath and curse of God are about to fall upon him for your sins and for mine. This is a dark moment that is about to overtake Christ, we will see that hope exudes from Christ even as death faces him. He can even speak of hope while he's looking at the cross or looking toward the cross. Well, okay, let's get into the actual message here. There are basically two points. And the first one is this. The kingdom hope according to Christ In other words, we're going to look at this glorious hope, this expectation of future dominion and elevation of the Christian faith. We're going to look at it in terms of what Christ taught. There's much post-millennial evidence in Christ's own teaching. Now, we've looked at Abraham, and we've looked at Isaiah, and we'll look at Paul in a few moments and other aspects of Scripture. But Christ is the one who really gets the hope throbbing in history. John 12, 31 and 32. These two verses are virtually a one-stop shopping for the post-millennial hope. If you want a couple of verses to go to, to bring to people to show why you might believe that this world will be overwhelmed with the gospel of Christ, this is a good place to go. And despite the shadow of the cross over him, hope shines through these verses. In John 12, 31 and 32, we read these words. Now judgment is upon this world... Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. This is what Christ himself says. And as with Isaiah 2, as we look at this, we're going to have to notice first something of the time issue. And so, capital A, Christ's emphasis on the time Christ's emphasis on the time. Remember last night in Isaiah 2, we had to deal with the last days concept. The concept of time there. So that we would understand when he's talking about these prophecies coming to pass. Well, now we're with Christ. And first, Christ's kingdom was established in the first century. We're going to note that. We're going to have to hold that dear to our hearts and deep in our minds. That Christ's kingdom was established in the first century. It does not await... For the distant future. It is not awaiting for the, toward the end of time. It's already been 2,000 years. It's not held in abeyance over that whole period of time. We're not waiting for the return of Christ before his kingdom comes. Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Greek word there, the Greek phrase in guion means at arm's length, basically. In other words, it's there almost you could reach out and touch it. It is coming, it is near, when Christ began to speak in Mark 1.15. In Matthew 12.28, much later, Mark 1 is at the opening of Christ's public ministry. Mark tw- uh, Matthew 12.28 is a little later. And notice what it says. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come to you. So the question arises, did Christ cast out demons by the Spirit of God? 
The logic of Christ says, that is so, and therefore the kingdom has come. Not off in the future, 2,000 years, 3,000 years down the road. Luke 17, 20 and 21 says, When questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. Why? For, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Even as I'm speaking, Christ says, the kingdom is here and in your very midst. In fact, he is the personification of the kingdom. He is the center of the kingdom. And so the kingdom was established in the first century. It's not something we're to hold off until a distant future time. But also notice, secondly, Christ's kingdom time had come. It had come. As the crucifixion approaches, Christ emphasizes that time has come. Note the double use of the adverb now in the phrase in John 12, 31, which is our basic text. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. These two truths are linked by this concept of now. This adverb now is repeated twice for emphasis. Now these things are coming to pass. Not in the distant future. Not after Hal Lindsey writes his books. Then we'll be getting close to it. It's now in the first century. And this declaration picks up on and explains Christ's preceding announcement. Now see, I'm in, we're in John 12, 31 and 32. And I'm going to back up into the text and see how all this is unfolding uh, in this direction. And what the significance of the progress of this passage is. It picks up and explains the preceding announcement in John 12, 23. Just a few verses before it. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour is now. He's going to be glorified. Not humiliated. He's going to be glorified. It's the step up into the resurrection, the ascension, and the ruling from the right hand of God that he's looking forward to. And this earlier statement was sparked by something going on round about him in that time. By the Gentiles seeking him out. Just a few verses before it says in John 12, 20 and 21, Now there were some Gentiles, well actually it says Greeks, Now there were some Greeks, it reminds me of something. We had some friends in Atlanta that would go see from time to time. And their kids were our kids' age. And their kids asked their mother one time, she told us about this later, when are those people coming to see us again? And she said, well, what people? And the little kid said, you know, the Gentiles. <laughs> well, John 12, 20 and 21 says, Now there were Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, therefore he's from their area, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. What is happening here is this is anticipating the entry of the Greeks, of the Gentiles, into the kingdom of God. They sought Jesus immediately after we learned that, in John 12, 19, moving back again, the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good? Look, the world has gone after him. They're seeing things change. They're, Jesus is not just dealing with Jews as an end in itself. 
He dealt with them first. He came to the Jews first, but he's also coming for the Greeks or for the Gentiles. And these Gentiles anticipate a fuller drawing because our passage says, John 12, 32, And I, if I am lifted up, which means lifted up on the cross and then lifted into heaven, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Not just Jews, not just a few men. Things are changing. Things are changing in the world in redemptive history. And we're going to see how significant this is for our hope for the future. Well, notice our next major point. Christ's judgment of the world. Christ begins unpacking the significance of the now time. Now is the time. Now is the time. Remember, twice he says this. Christ begins unpacking the significance of the now time. Now, judgment is upon the world. Well, what does this mean? What is Christ saying here? How does this help the post-millennial argument for the hope of the victory of the gospel in history? As Christians, we well know that Christ's death was no accident. He didn't come into the world and accidentally death overwhelmed him and he was outfoxed by the Pilate and Herod and those people. Not at all. John 10, 17 and 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me. I have laid it down of my own initiative. In fact, this was prophesied almost at the beginning in Genesis 3.15 when it talks about the crushing of the serpent and uh, the, the bruising of the seed of the woman, which refers to Christ's uh, crucifixion. The cross was horrible. The wrath and curse of God, beyond just the physical pain it must have caused Christ. I can't imagine the pain of suffering on the cross. But in addition to that, he had the wrath and curse of God upon him so that he cried out, the Son of God cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He died for a great purpose, a creation purpose, a redemptive purpose, a covenant purpose, a prophetic purpose, the four issues we dealt with last night. But now, so what? What is the judgment of the world? What does the word judgment mean? And again, how does it help us in our search for hope in history? What does the word signify? Well, to get at this, let's notice first. The general options available. Okay, we're wanting to know what this word judgment means here. How it functions in the text and how it helps in our conference here. So what are the general options available? The Greek word for judgment is the word krisis, where we get our word crisis from. It comes directly from the Greek into our language. Except in Greek it's spelled with a K and we spell it with a C. Well, the Hebrew background of this word krisis is that it is a legal term. It is a court term. And there are several uh, connotations to this. And the two leading possibilities, the two leading connotations are... This judgment can mean an utter condemnation. Now judgment is upon this world. An utter condemnation, as in capital punishment. For instance, a felon receives the judgment decree of death when he has murdered somebody. In John 18, 31, for instance, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and you judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, We are not permitted 
to put anyone to death. So see the, the word creases there. Pilate says, you go judge him, meaning you put him to death. And then they say, no, we can't. Caesar's tied our hands. We can't do this. And so there the word judgment means a uh, condemnation. Ultimately, God's throne decree is one of judgment. Matthew 12, 36. I tell you that every careless word that uh, people speak, they shall give and account for in the day of judgment. There again, the word judgment, creases, means some overt destructive judgment. Is that what Christ is talking about here? That's the first option. But there's a second The word creases, the word judgment, can speak of a wrong that is corrected. A wrong that is corrected. That is, you might think of a court judgment that is correcting some historical wrong in the community. That is, a judgment regarding uh, a bad situation that requires the judicial authority to straighten things out without putting anyone to death and bringing down judgment. Just sorting through the issues. It can mean that kind of thing. In fact, often the word creases, the word judgment here, is translated by the word justice. It's the same identical background word. Creases can mean judgment or it can mean justice. In Matthew 12, 18, this word appears and he says, I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He shall proclaim creases to the Gentiles. This is the word justice. See, it's correcting of wrongs. Not judging and putting to death, but correcting wrongdoings. Matthew 23, 23 says, You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice. Again, a righting of wrongs. Well, so consider this. Number two, the specific application here. We've got these two uh, possibilities. It can mean judgment and destruction, or it can mean justice and reorganization and taking care of things to straighten up complications. What is the specific application here? Christ now is beginning a redemptive correcting. I think the second interpretation about justice is what's going on here. Now is justice for the world. Now begins the the time of redemptive correcting. Christ has come into the world and he's going to be correcting things the way they should be. He's going to fix the world's sin problem. He's going to fix it, correcting it, leading to reformation and a reversal of the circumstances that have been brought about by sin. That's what he's intending to do. Christ does so by two stated, mutually supported observations. Now, I've said that the word can mean justice, and I'm saying the context obviously is going to be speaking of justice, not condemnation, because we see these two issues here. One is, the old ruler of the world is about to be cast out. Verse 31. That's Satan. But then also, a new ruler will be established. I will draw all men to myself. Satan has ruled all men. He's being cast out. I'm going to draw all men to myself. Satan messed things up. Christ is coming to straighten things out. 
is the idea going on here. This is the view of John Calvin and, of course, many other people. But I know you've heard of John Calvin. If not, maybe Calvin and Hobbes will do. But how do we know that this is the case here? Partly by process of elimination. Okay, we know the word can mean that. And we see that the ruler of the world being cast out and a new ruler being established leads to that end. But how can we know for sure? Well, notice Jesus's pre, uh, excuse me, Jesus's previous statement. If he's saying, "Now shall be the judgment of this world, and God's wrath and curse and will come down upon the world," that would be contrary to John three seventeen. In John three seventeen, he says, Jesus says, "For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved." The purpose of Christ's coming was not to bring judgment on the world in that catastrophic sense. It was to save the world. And so in important respects, John 3.17 parallels John 12.31 and 32. Now notice John's narrative context. This also feeds into this notion that we're trying to present here. The context speaks of Christ's redemptive kingship. A few verses before where we are, uh, we find the triumphal entry. In John 12, 13, the people cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Well, Christ's kingship is a redemptive kingship. After all, he's headed to the cross to die. You don't set up a kingdom by killing yourself as a king. But Jesus does because his kingdom is a redemptive kingship, not a political kingship. And then John immediately explains after verse 31, John 12, 33, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death of which he was about to die. You see, in the passage it's talking about Jesus is preparing to die. Why? To set up his spiritual kingdom, which involves redemption, not one that involves judging all sinners and wiping them out or anything of that nature. Redemption, you see, involves correction, reforming, remaking for God's purposes. For example, one image of our redemption is we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. There's a reordering of your life and salvation. You have new values, new priorities, new goals. And this is what Jesus is coming into the world to do, to affect new values, new purposes, new goals, and things of that sort. Therefore, the person that becomes a new creation is being corrected and straightened up and remade. Now, we could wish that we would be sanctified more quickly, more fully, immediately, but the fact is, it's a process that goes on. But Christ has come to make you a new creation, to reform you into something other than what you are as a fallen sinner. Another image of creation, that, I mean of a redemption, that shows it involves a remaking or reordering is Matthew thirteen thirty three. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until all was leavened. You see, what happens here is leaven causes the wheat to change its condition, to rise, become bigger, and to become more useful. 
Nobody wants to sit and eat wheat seeds, but once you've made it into bread, like somebody brought me some bread. That was, uh, where is she? Well, anyway, I had some bread brought to me, homemade bread, and I've been enjoying that. And so, and I like that a lot better than a pile of wheat. I'll just say that right up front. Okay, some of y'all think, hey, he might like some wheat. All right. So we're seeing this imagery of the radical reformation, the reformulation of things, to straighten things up. That's why Christ has come into this world. Therefore, Christ's redemptive judgment in our context means a remaking of the world, a restructuring of it, bringing justice into this world through His grace. A world long afflicted with sin and dominated by Satan. He's come in to change things. He didn't just come in to muddle through. He came in to change things. And we'll see how this requires a post-millennial view. Well, so now let's notice, number C in your outline, Christ's dethronement of Satan. This feeds in to what we've been talking about. Consider the world situation before Christ came. The true knowledge of God was limited to Israel. Oh yeah, we know there were one or two Gentiles, Naaman the leper and some others, that uh, came into contact with Israel and knew the true God. But by and large, overwhelmingly, the world was dominated by Satan and that God's purposes were limited to Israel, a very small nation, the smallest of the peoples of the earth, according to Deuteronomy 7. And therefore we read this condition of the Old Testament world that is no longer the condition of the world today. Deuteronomy 4, 33 and 35. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. He is speaking to the Israelites and He says, Has any other people had, a, had God speak to them as you have heard God speak? No, the answer is... Psalm 147, 19 and 20. God declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and His judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for His judgments, they have not known them. The other nations round about don't know the mercies of God. Only Israel. Amos 3, 2. You only have a known of all the families of the earth. That's the condition of the world before Christ came into it. Therefore, before Christ, Satan had world dominion. And Christ even recognizes this. Remember at the temptation in Luke 4, verse 5, when uh, Satan's tempting him, Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says in Luke 4, 6, All this authority I will give you in their glory, for these have been delivered to me. And notice Christ did not say, that is not so. He accepted Satan's evaluation there. Christ rebuked him, but not rebut him. He rebuked him for thinking that he would bow down to him. But he did not rebut him as to having the wrong view of who was deemed the ruler of the world. Christ calls Satan the ruler of the world in several places in this very gospel we're in. In John 12, 31b, the ruler of this world will be cast out, which is the verse we're reading. John 14, 30, the ruler of this world is coming and has nothing in me. John 16, 11, the ruler of this world has been judged. But now a climax is being reached. Now things will change. Verse 31. 
Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This is why we see so much demonism in the New Testament. It's an important part of Christ's ministry. Mark 1, 34. He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. Mark 6, 13. Uh, his disciples were casting out many demons. Mark 8, 16. They brought to him many who were demon-possessed. This is not due to a primitive view of, of psychological problems in the first century. They just said it must be a demon. This guy's an idiot. Now, that's not what's going on there. It's not a primitive worldview that we're reading about. It's actual redemptive historical realities we're reading about. Satan was the ruler of the, this world since the fall of Adam. And now Christ has come into the world to reverse the tide and begin turning it against Satan and beginning to arrogate to himself the rule of this world so that Satan will not have that dominion. And that's what we must recognize is going on here. It's a redemptive historical reality. The old world order, the old ruler of the world is now face to face with the new ruler. And he is going to cast, the new ruler is going to cast out Satan. The decisive battle has come in history. Two kingdoms are colliding. And now Satan himself will be cast out. It's the same wording that's used in the casting out of demons. Satan is going to be cast out of this world. Christ is casting Satan out of the world so that he not have uh, dominance as in the Old Testament. This is a dramatic, redemptive, historical event. Christ has broken the back of Satan's dominion. This is a frequent New Testament theme. Now you might be thinking, well I know Satan still exists and he still tempts and there's still sin in the world. But we must look at it from a biblical perspective. What does the Bible say about Satan in this regard? Matthew 12, 28 and 29. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or else, how can one enter a strong man's house and squander his, or plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Jesus is saying, I'm binding the strong man Satan by taking demon-possessed people away from him. Luke 10, 18, Jesus says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In the uh, 70, they come back to him saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He looked up and says, I see Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Colossians 2.15 He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. God has overwhelmed the rulers and authorities, the demonic hordes through Christ. Hebrews 2.14 Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now Christ either did it or he didn't. Whatever we might think about the world situation, the, some facts are here that we're going to explain a little more fully in a moment. 1 John 3, 8, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The post-millennial hope requires the overthrow of Satan and his satanic kingdom and... Christ has effected that in principle, in legal fashion, in God's courtroom. God deems Satan to be a conquered foe beneath the feet of Christ. 
Since Christ's time, the world has not been subject to Satan's absolute dominion. No longer is it just one little people and one little sliver of land in, in the world. Now the gospel has gone out into all the world. And any of you here that are not of Jewish heritage are testimonies to that fact. If you were Gentile in the Old Testament, you almost certainly were not redeemed. In Old Testament times, Gentiles were wholly under the authority of Satan, but his back has been broken. And also, notice this, capital D in your notes, Christ's enthronement over men. Now the post-millennial hope is going to really get fired up and take off. Verse 32, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Again, not just Jews, not just a remnant. remnant. I'm not going to pluck brands from the fire, as has been said by some of old. The chains of Satan have been broken. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It will prevail. The cross and the resurrection were historical events and the victory of Christ will be a historical event that unfolds in God's history under God's providence. Remember, Christ declared the approaching kingdom. Mark 1.15 The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Luke 11.20 If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And Christians, the kingdom will grow in God's good time, gradually over time, Daniel 2 gives the image of the king, kingdom of God as a stone coming out of heaven, striking this mountain, uh, striking this image until it becomes a great mountain, this stone. Ezekiel 17 says the kingdom is like a twig that is taken from the high lofty cedar and when it is planted it becomes a great tree itself. In Ezekiel 47, it says uh, God's grace is like a fountain that comes out of the altar of God and flows ever and ever deeper until it becomes a river that no man can ford. In other words, we see all these images of a growing realization of the kingdom of God. Gradualism. The kingdom comes. The kingdom grows gradually over time. And Jesus very specifically taught this. In Matthew 13, 31 and 32, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, in other words, it's expected to grow fully. When it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. In the earlier uh, parables, we find the birds picking up the seed of the kingdom and eating it and taking it away from men. Now those birds are being converted, as it were, in the imagery here. The kingdom is a living principle, not a static one. It's a living principle because of the Holy Spirit. And it has, therefore, a growth tendency. And Christ promises its growth in history. The kingdom will grow universally. Christ's statement is prophetic. It looks forward to the time when the kingdom becomes a dominant plant in the garden of God's world, like the uh, mountain of the house of the Lord becoming the chief of the mountains in the Old Testament. John 12, 32 speaks in confidence, I will draw all men to myself. John 3.17 says, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That's why Jesus came. 
This is God's world. He created it for a purpose. And he's not just going to throw it away and say, well, that didn't work. No, God is, has sent his son to redeem the world as a, the world of cosmos, which is the opposite of chaos in the Greek. Cosmos is the opposite of chaos. It means order and structure. This world as an orderly structure of men and things. Christ has come to save. 1 John 2, 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. This is our redemptive hope. This is the postmillennial hope. Christ has come into the world to restructure it with the principles of justice and God's, uh, from God's law. He's defeating Satan and drawing all men to himself. Many Christians anticipate the victory of Antichrist, but postmillennialism anticipates the victory of Jesus Christ. And there are two fundamentally different principles operating in Christian circles. Our hope is sure. It's secured in creation, in covenant, in prophecy, and in Jesus' words. And this hope comes to us through redemption. But there's more in the New Testament. And I just want to focus on one other passage here. Or, yeah, one other passage. Roman numeral 2. Who is this? Uh, the kingdom hope according to Paul. I'll let him fix that because I'm tired of hearing me. Okay, the kingdom hope according to Paul. Now I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. This is the great resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is a go-to passage for dealing with Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. Paul presents what I believe to be a strong case for our future hope based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But also a strong case for world redemption. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 27, throbs with the postmillennial hope. It almost seems he gave it to rebut premillennialism and amillennialism. No, he didn't. Hal Lindsey wasn't even alive back then, but it almost seems that way. Well, notice first, capital A, what Paul cannot teach. Number one, Paul's teaching undermines premillennialism. Contrary to premillennialism, our resurrection is not a signal for a new beginning. We're not resurrected to enter into the millennial kingdom. Actually, it is signaling the end of history. It is signaling the historical finale to history. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 24. For as in Adam all day die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When Christ returns, that's the end. There's not another thousand years to be worked out into a millennium. And notice that not only is there no new era coming, no millennium to fall, rather there is the end that is coming. The resurrection signals the end. When Christ returns and we are resurrected, the end comes. In the premillennial view, Christ's return establishes the kingdom for a thousand years. And that's what we're resurrected to, to go into this political bureaucratic kingdom to uh, operate under Christ in his bureaucratic control. And what is worse, at the end of that kingdom, John Walford, Charles Ryrie, J. Dwight Pentecost, and many other dispensational scholars have said at the end of the millennium that Christ has governed hands-on for a thousand years 
there is a rebellion. And Christ is cornered into Jerusalem. And then God sends fire to destroy the enemies. Christ fouled up according to the premillennial view. Well, secondly, Paul's teaching also undermines amillennialism. Amillennialism doesn't fare much better. Now, amillennialism is a species of postmillennialism because both, both are postmillennial, saying Christ will return after the millennium. And they were historically related and one grew out of the other in the 1800s. Amillennialism doesn't fare much, uh, doesn't fare much better because amillennialism is highly pessimistic. According to G.C. Burkauer and Louis Burkhoff, and I could name dozens of, of amillennial scholars that say what we're to expect in the world is increasing destruction until the Antichrist arises at the very end of history. But contrary to amillennialism, Paul writes, verse 24, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. The end comes after the opposition has been destroyed. Well, let's notice what Paul teach, does teach. Capital B, what Paul does teach. Paul's teaching confirms the postmillennial hope. And we must notice several nuances in the passage here. Notice he says the end comes when he hands over the kingdom to God. And the context specifically associates that with the final resurrection. But there's something easy to miss here. It's easy to miss because of translation subtleties that you have to get back behind the English reading to figure out what's going on. Something must happen before Christ returns and hands over the kingdom to God the Father. Before Christ returns at the end of history, something must happen. He must put down all opposition. Verse 24b says, in some versions, when he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. But a better translation would be after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. If you look in the NIV, the ESV, and the New Revised Standard Version, this is what you will find. In the NIV it says, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. ESV. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Paul states that the end of history will not come until after Christ has put down all opposition. It's not only required grammatically, but contextually. Because in verse 25 he says, He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Notice the present concept. He is reigning and he must continue to reign until he has put down all enemies under his feet. This must happen because God has legally effected it. Legally and in principle, all things have already been subjected to Christ in the first century. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 27 says, He has put all things in subjection under His feet. That speaks of His legal right. His legal right to rule. Since the first century, Christ has been the victor in principle. Well, the writer of Hebrew brings in something here that's helpful for us. Hebrews 2.8 says, he's talking of God, You have put all things in subjection under His feet, for in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not sub subject to Him. But, now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. 
God has done this in principle in heaven and at the cross, but we don't see it. We're out here in the messy world, and we don't just see Christ glorified all around us. We don't see that yet. That is coming, though, because he will reign until all these enemies become a footstool for his feet. The post-millennial hope is rooted in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is our creation hope. It is our eschatological hope that was established on sure foundations of creation, redemption, covenant, prophecy, and the word of Jesus Christ the Lord. It's rooted in the revelation of Moses, Isaiah, Jesus, Paul, and really everywhere in the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for this time you've granted to us. We pray that these words of Scripture would penetrate our hearts and, and guide us in our thoughts and our uh, goals in life. And Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth, that sanctifies us. Help us, O oh Lord. Sanctify us even in this conference as we open your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.